So it's that time of the week again. It's the Constant Geekery podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Pete. And uh, again, this is a special lockdown edition. We're still under lockdown conditions in the UK, so we're podcasting over Zoom. There's a, a small delay, but I think we'll be able to manage Pete, don't you? We're, we'll make it through, I'm sure. We'll we'll try and sound, you know, suave, sophisticated, articulate, witty. Um, we've never managed to do that before, so I don't know why I'm expecting to do it in this yeah, episode. I, um, I don't think the delay is going to um, help with that either way. No. Let's roll the credits. Intro. Not credits. We haven't got credits yet. There is no credit. We, we should intro. really have one. So what have we got to look forward to in this episode? Uh, well, first of all, I'm looking forward to enjoying uh, some more whiskey. What and, have you got tonight, uh, week, Dave? I'm going again with a bit of bourbon, and it's Maker's Mark this week. So uh, we're not sponsored by Maker's Mark or anything. Um, if you're listening by any chance, people who make Maker's Mark would be quite happy to be sponsored, um, but we're not yet. I, I find this a particularly enjoyable bourbon. So trying to trying to mix it up every week, which isn't doing my wallet any favours, Pete. No, what have I you got? Well, as uh, as listeners will know, I um I can't partake of alcohol at the moment. Not for any ethical reasons; it just uh, for for health reasons. I can't enjoy a nice whiskey, um, and uh, so that does limit what I can have of an evening. I did have a few suggestions: some particularly nasty smoothies, cups of tea, all that sort of thing were very good. But as we're recording this in the evening, I have gone for a a, a litre of sugar-free Vimto. Uh, and it's fair to say <laughs> we're not sponsored by Vimto, and I can probably manage to shout my own bottle of Vimto once a week. So thanks anyway. Pete has this habit of drinking from extraordinarily large drinking vessels. And uh, for those of you who are not watching us on YouTube, that's uh, youtube.com forward slash constant geekery, by the way. Uh, if you're not watching, you're listening on your favorite podcast channel, you'll have missed the fact that Pete was basically holding up a bucket of Vimto. Now, I happen to know that this means that if we don't get this podcast done in a reasonable time frame, there's definitely going to be some jump cuts in in the edit. And Pete, it calls to mind that time where we had to go and go and see those clients up in Scotland, and we were you drunk about three liters of tea before we got to the airport at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, and we were waiting to board the plane. And um, you know, sometimes when you when you have to go, you have to go. And my bladder could not could not accept any more delays. <laughs> so while well, waiting to board the plane, I had to go and uh, relieve myself. It wasn't quite as bad as Alan Shepard on the Mercury One capsule. I didn't have to do it in my flight suit, but it was it was touch and go there for a second. And as I recall it, Pete, we we were desperately close to missing the flight, actually. Because I seem to recall running across the airport to get to the to get to the gate in the first place. Yeah, and obviously uh, we were at like you know gate sixty seven or something because you never get gate one, do you? No, um, there is no gate one. Anyway, let's let's move it on a bit. I just want to say uh, I want to say a thanks at this point to all our viewers and listeners because our podcast last week, episode seven, and Pete doesn't know this yet, so I'm going to surprise him, has had over five thousand listens slash views since Monday last week. Wow! For those again who aren't watching, Pete had his mouth wide open channel tunnel style yeah. <laughs> that's incredible thanks ever so much it's um it's actually quite humbling to think that that many people want to listen to the dronings of two middle-aged men um 
uh, well, Dave and myself anyway. So thank you very much for that. That that does mean a lot, and it's it's encouraging. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm sure lots of people would say, well, that's small fry, but uh, uh, we appreciate it very much. And um, from uh, small beginnings, you never know. We'll see what happens. Let's get down to our topic of the week, and we're going to start off. Actually, we've got we've got essentially three topics to talk about this week. And I think one of them is going to take a lot longer than the others. But let's just start with the release of Mac OS 11, Big Sur. And I think it's fair to say Apple bungled this a little bit, Pete. Yeah, that's a very gentle way of putting it. Um, some might some might be slightly more caustic than that. Um, obviously, Big Sur was quite anticipated, not just because it was another release of um, OS X, um, which we get every year typically, but this was the first release that supported Apple Silicon. So probably a lot of interest from that point of view, uh, quite an exciting release. And um, so demand naturally was going to be high for that anyway. Uh, new hmm. new releases always are, but this one had incredibly slow glacial, glacially slow, some might say, uh, download speeds on launch day. And you would have thought that Apple would have allowed for that. They would have um, made sure their servers were spun up sufficiently. I mean, that's the whole point of, you know, elastic-based server uh, server support these days. Uh, but it wasn't there, it would seem. So they 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 messed up on the additional bandwidth, it would seem. Yeah, I tried to download it, I think, four or five times, and it, it would it was very, very slow. The progress bar was all over the shop and then it would just fail when it got to the end uh bit of a bit of a faux pas i, I just want to circle back to something you said pete because uh just to, to head off any comments in the in the comments section um it's uh it's not osx anymore or os10 as as apple would like us to say because it is actually now mac os 11 they have incremented the version number so we've been on mac os 10 since Ever since they got rid of OS nine, which was classic, you know, this is so. Apple is, you know, this is a big step change, and it just adds to what you were saying. You know, there was a lot of excitement about this. It's got a nice new look. You know, people wanted to get this this download. It was obvious. Lots of people were going to be trying to download it. Yeah, and I was clearly paying attention because I had that completely breezed by me that we're on OS eleven now. So woohoo, even more exciting. Um, yeah. But yeah, in- incredibly hard to get hold of. Um, and and that's not all. Of course, once loads of people had downloaded this, once once they'd managed to do that, and it was a case for some, it was like back to the fifty six k modem days, um, or less in some cases. Um, that the download failed or the the install failed at some point along the way. So expectations rising and then being dashed away. Very frustrating. Yeah, and some quite worrying um, stuff appearing as well. You know, reports of people with bricked MacBooks after trying to install it as well. Yeah, um, I've I've been reading some of the comments on various, you know, on the Apple support forums themselves, on uh, I think Mac rumors, Reddit, um, slow installs. Some even suggesting this was this is a classic one. Just give it the weekend to to install if the progress bar is going slow. Just give it the weekend. <laughs> okay. It's so you've crazy. waited for the download. The install is now crawling along like a pig in treacle. And then on top of that, uh, people reporting kernel panics, um, can't even get into the pram to 
you know, reset settings to get it to work. Um, safe mode not being accessible. Working sometimes, not others. 2013 MacBook Pros, 2014 MacBook Pros seem to be the worst hit. Um, but incredibly distressing if you've got a MacBook that you've you've been waiting <laughs> hours, if not days, to download and install this thing, and then it bricks your MacBook. And of course, there'll be a, a whole group of people that will say, "Well, that's what you get for for installing the OS the minute it gets released." And yeah, to a degree, that's a fair comment. But um, you know, everyone's entitled to do whatever they like with their computer. And if you want to install your the new OS on release day, then by all means, go ahead and do it. Uh, just yeah. be prepared. You know, be prepared. It, it, there, there's always a few issues. It, it does go back to what we're saying is Apple absolutely love to use their consumers as beta testers. So yeah. one, might, one might say this isn't actually the final release. It's kind of like a, a, a closed beta or an open beta that we go to when they say, ah, oh, and we're releasing it on this day. Um, so, yeah, you, you pay your money or press your downloads and takes your choice, as they say. One of the things I did have to say, I, I love this, is people getting so worried that the the progress bar wasn't going, that they had all sorts of amusing ways to to know if the because obviously the pixel density on screens now is like has that gone up or not? So the, the the normal way to do it is just to leave your mouse pointer and don't move it, and then wait to see if it goes past it. But I have people putting post it notes on on where the progress bar is to see if it goes past oh, no. um, the the a matchstick held in place by blue tag. <laughs> <laughs> and the Brilliant. best one the best one obviously hadn't thought this through or it got to that point sharpie <laughs> no. colored in the progress bar so hopefully when it shows again you know it's going but uh, yeah hopefully i don't know if sharpie comes off uh retina screens i suppose who knows sharpie mm. gate i have to say i i gave up downloading it on release day i downloaded it the day after um, I did want to get it installed because I want to, as part of our Apple Silicon testing, I want to make sure all the machines are on the same OS. Uh, and I installed it fine on my 2013 Mac Pro, uh, released a video on that on the channel, no issues at all. And likewise on my 13-inch MacBook Pro that we're using now for Zoom, no no issues whatsoever. And also the 15-inch notebook that we use for video editing as well. So, it's, so not everyone's had problems. I, I suspect no. it's actually quite a small percentage of people had issues, but... There it is. Yeah. It is frustrating, of course, uh, to have an outage at, at that time. It was embarrassing for Apple uh, because it wasn't just this either. They had outages on their the Apple Pay was down for a bit um, and a few other things as well. And uh, Apple said this was caused by a server-side misconfiguration. Well, I've been managing servers for many years, and I know that happens. Uh, and it was compounded by an unrelated uh, CDN or content delivery network misconfiguration. So I can absolutely identify with this, you know, where you've got, you've, you've made a mistake somewhere, but also there's some other random mistake in it. You know, those kind of bugs are really difficult to, to track down. So, so we do have I'm some almost, sympathy and, and almost, you know, it's, it's almost quite reassuring that it can happen to the big boys as well, you know, and it does always seem that you, you don't just get one issue, but it's a, a a catalogue of things that are completely unrelated, but you know, to to the to the customer, that means very little. It's just not working. Mm. One of the things that went down, of course, was the OCSP process. So, 
this is the online certificate status protocol. So uh, this led to a whole load of privacy concerns. So let's let's now talk about this because this has hit the news in quite a big way. Oh, so, massively. Ma- yeah, it is massive. So I, um, how to start? So first of all, on your Mac, you've got something called Gatekeeper. And what Gatekeeper does is it, it does an online check to see whether or not the app that you're installing has been developed by a certified developer. So that's a developer that has an ID with Apple and a developer certificate. And they're also checking to see whether it's got any malware within the app. And once a Gatekeeper's done that, it notarizes the app. In other words, it creates a hash to say, yeah, you know, this is the state that it's in and, and it's all fine. It essentially signs off, doesn't it? When, when we say, when that technical term of notarize for those that perhaps, are like, what does that mean? It, it digitally signs it and says, essentially, this is okay. Yeah, very good. So um, this process, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail as we go, but this this gatekeeper process also includes OCSP, so Online Certificate Status Protocol. And this service is designed to fail gracefully so that if you don't have a network connection it will let you launch the app. Um, yeah. And it, what happened, though, of course, because the system went down in, in a slightly odd way, it didn't fail gracefully. So you had users who were unable to open apps on their MacBook, which they put down to, you know, maybe an issue with Big Sur or, or something else, until they uh, either set up some network configuration in their host file to, to point to some other server when uh, the OCSP server was called, or they just switched their Wi-Fi off to launch apps. And of course, this then has led to this publicizing of these uh, privacy issues. So there are two issues. So um, issue number one, Pete. Yeah, so issue number one is that this process sends data uh, unencrypted to check for the the status of the certificate um, and in that process logs your IP address right so lots of people very upset about that hmm. uh, issue two is that the check itself runs outside of any VPN that you've got running or any firewall on Big Sur yeah so, so that's important to say isn't it and any any software firewall you have on your device Yes, obviously it can't circumvent a hardware firewall that's somewhere else on the network. Hmm. So uh, we're going to come back to issue two later, but let's we start with issue one and the reaction that that we've got. And admittedly, I think you know the most vehement reactions came from people who are already fairly anti-Apple in a lot of ways, and they're they're crying foul hmm. and. You know, Lewis Rossman was particularly eloquent on the subject and uh, particularly upset about it. I mean, uh, to hear him speak, you'd think that Tim Cook had gone round his house and taken a dump in his kitchen sink, frankly. Not it again. Was, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was quite it was entertaining, actually, to I listen to. Him. But what, what I think is needed here is rather than mad hysteria and panic, is a healthy serving of perspective, Pete. Do you think we can dish up some perspective? Well, it is the uh, constant geekery way, so why not? Okay. So, first of all, 
these issues are not specific to Big Sur. No, they're not. So Apple has been doing this for a while. I can't remember when Gatekeeper was introduced, but uh, well, quite a few um, releases ago. Yeah, uh, Catalina for sure, but some of some of the processes we're talking about here um, were present or uh, suspectedly present in Mojave as well. Hmm. Yeah, so some of this goes goes back a while. It's, it is important to say that from Catalina onwards, so for Catalina and Big Sur, there is a separate process that's going on as well. So after that initial uh, process that notarizes the apps, um, when you then launch the app again in the future, another check is made to ensure that uh, the app hasn't become malicious since it was last notarized. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And this check is encrypted. So yeah. there are there are two things that, that are going on and uh, they seem to be you know, getting merged into one thing. So that particular check is encrypted. And the reason why Apple are doing this is uh, essentially just to protect your system. You know, if, if malware has been introduced into your app, Apple's going to tell you about it. If the developer has lost their certification, and that's, you know, fairly rare that Apple would revoke a developer certificate, they've got to breach the terms and conditions to do that. Um, then, you know, Apple's going to tell you about that. So uh, I think that's, that's you know, it's one of the reasons why people buy buy Apple in the first place, isn't it? To have that yeah. measure of extra protection. But let's just go back to this original check that gets made and the, the fact that your IP address gets sent off unencrypted. How do we feel about that, Pete? Well... I can understand people getting upset about it, but at the end of the day, an IP address isn't personally identifiable information, really. Um, you know, it, it can it can narrow down where you are, and certainly with other information, it can be useful. But on its own, um, it's not particularly personal information. And there's plenty of other ways that a malicious actor, as as the security uh peeps tend to call them could get that information so it's not like this is the only way that they could get it no and you know ip addresses and for those those who are listening who aren't familiar with with networking standards you know an ip address is basically a unique number um there are two different types there's ip version 4 or ip version 6 um basically a unique identifier for your machine once you're connected to the internet and for many people, this uh, unique number, this IP address is uh, given to them at the time they connect by their ISP and will change. You know, their IP address will change. Uh, so it's not tied to them personally in the first place. It's tied to their internet service provider. However, there are others who have business uh, systems. And, you know, for example, at our web studio in the office, we've got a one gigabit fiber line and we have a batch of IP addresses that are registered to the business person, you know, specifically. Uh, but I also have a business connection here at home, and I have a block of four IP addresses uh, that are mine. Those are fixed. You know, they don't change. Um, but if you try to geolocate my IP address, it tells you I'm in Scotland, which I'm not. You know, uh, Scotland is about as far away as you could get in the UK from where I am. What we'll do, so. just so you can verify that, is we'll, we'll put a, a pin in Google Maps on where Dave is located, just so you know. 
<laughs> Thanks, Pete. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I'll put another pin in as well so people can see how close I have to live to you. <laughs> it's a thing of beauty. But that's the point, isn't it, is that it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it can be a very coarse way of locating someone, but it's not particularly reliable. We certainly don't tend to rely on it in, in web development for pinpointing someone's location. Hmm. Now, according to, to Lewis Rossman, he what he says is that law enforcement have apparently requested this. And I, I think the number he said was something like 17,000 times in the last year. And I, I absolutely don't know where he's got that information from or even if I've remembered that correctly. Um, but law enforcement may well get this data showing IP addresses and apps being opened. But what are they actually going to do with that in isolation? Yeah, I mean, it's it's effectively useless in isolation. It would need to be combined with all the other data that law enforcement had collected, and then it might be meaningful. But on its own, it's not, is it? No, and, you know, we could probably circle back to this at the end, but uh, at the end of the day, if if you're not doing something nefarious, A, you probably don't care if that information... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not being light with privacy here, okay? I, I, privacy is important to me, but if you're not doing anything nefarious, then you probably don't need to worry and frankly if you are you're going to you're going to not be doing the things that expose you to this anyway because you're going to be one step ahead of everything that we're talking about here surely and certainly using uh firewalls and all sorts of things in outside of your device so you know it it's a bit of a non issue we talk about privacy privacy and yet all day long we're accepting terms and conditions on apps and devices not just apple across the board google is just as bad as this as apple and other other businesses that run a mock over this anyway so it's a bit it's a bit of a a storm in a teacup yeah i I agree with you and i you know at the end of the day this is the world we live in if you've got a smartphone with a gps chip in it uh, if you use the internet in any way then you leave footprints behind and you can be traced you know government agencies invest a huge amount of money in watching what people are doing online, but they're not watching everybody. You know, they need a reason to go and look at someone. Do you imagine that there's somebody sat at Apple watching my logs going, oh, I see Dave's just opened DaVinci Resolve. I assume he's going to be editing a video. Well, yeah, that's that's usually why people open DaVinci Resolve. And I don't really see how that is a, is a massive deal. Um, so I, I understand, like you, Pete, I'm not making light of, of privacy. That That is important. But an IP address on its own combined with an app application log is not the same as Apple watching everything you do. Uh, Tim Cook doesn't sit in a big video room, you know, in a swivel chair stroking a white cat, uh, desperately interested in when Pete next opens Final Cut. You know, it just... It, or it's or waiting to see if anyone actually ever ever uses Pages. Pages. Oh, right. I'm a bit slow tonight. Or numbers. Yeah. So let's just move on to talk about OCSP and the fact that it's this happens unencrypted. And the reason why it happens unencrypted is because um, it's doing more than just checking the developer ID certificate. It, uh, OCSP is a standard industry protocol. It's not something that Apple invented Um or if they did invent, you know, lots of people are, are also using it. It's fairly standard. And it doesn't run over an encrypted web channel because if it did, you, you would create an endless loop because it would have to check the certificate of the 
the connection that it creates and so on and so forth. So uh, this whole Apple sending my data unencrypted business is uh, not really, that's not really the case at all. Um, and if it is sending any data unencrypted, it's only an IP address. And as we've spoken about, you know, that is not the same as any personally identifiable information. No. Uh, so, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's been blown out of proportion, I think. Definitely. Let's talk, talk about issue two, Pete. Yeah. So this is more concerning, I would say. Yeah, I agree. I it is it does give a bit of cause for disquiet. I, what I would say is I don't think it's deliberate. I think it is a mistake, um, or an oversight is probably the case. Um, so OS eleven or Mac OS eleven doesn't allow kernel extensions. So the way firewalls and VPNs work has changed. Um, so I think I think it's just something that they haven't, you know, properly communicated to developers because I think people were aware of this before Big Sur was released. I think there was some knowledge of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it has uh, been it has been communicated to developers. I mean, uh, Apple has developed additional uh, API calls, you know, uh, I think it's a net filter there's a net filter right. API and you, you kind of communicate with that instead of doing it the old way. Um, and the whole point of this is to, is to make the system more secure by not allowing anything to modify the kernel or the core of the operating system. Um, but it seems that that change hasn't been properly enforced and Apple haven't put in enough backwards compatibility perhaps, but certainly their, their check circumvents VPNs and, firewalls and there's talk that you know a bad actor could also do the same thing i'm less convinced about that i have to say because again if you've got gatekeeper on then you know this is an app that's been verified by apple and verified to be free of malware but it is perfectly conceivable that there is stuff that that's going over the network in an unexpected way and where this probably isn't an issue for most people because they may not be using VPNs. But certainly there are some people who, you know, need to use VPNs for sensitive reasons for their work or other things, or they need to have specific firewalls in place. So to have any network traffic that can circumvent that is going to make you uneasy, isn't it? And that's understandable, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, we don't really, I'm not aware that Apple has responded to this yet. They certainly responded to the first issue, but they haven't responded to the second. But I would be very surprised if they don't fix this in the next update. Yeah. And again, it's another one of those. If you install the first version, first release that comes out, well, this is what you get. Yeah. There are and, gonna be you know, teething troubles. To, to be fair, I know you've installed it. I haven't installed it yet, but. You've installed it on your personal machines for essentially research purposes, knowing full well what you were going into. But any sensible business, and our web studio is an example of this, we say, wait, don't install. And we do it with every new new release. Wait until our IT department have assessed it and are satisfied that it's stable, that there are no software incompatibilities or other other glitches or bugs that would affect productivity or security of the business and any business should be taking similar precautions when it comes to 
um, any release, not just a- not just Apple software, but you know Windows, Microsoft software, or anyone else for that matter. Yeah, that's a, yeah, and that's wisdom, isn't it? Because yeah, I mean Apple aren't alone in in this. I can remember various releases of Windows that caused all sorts of issues. You know, having worked in IT, you know, you have to test these things out and make sure that it's uh, stable for your particular situation. So I suspect there aren't actually very many people who are directly affected by this yet, but Apple does need to address this. You can't have a situation where I establish a a VPN and then I say I want all of my traffic routed through that VPN and the operating system is covertly sending some stuff over over the web. No. Uh, It defeats the whole purpose. That's it, and Apple do need to respond to that, and I'm sure they will, will in will in due course. But they haven't responded to that VPN issue, that second issue yet. But they have they have responded to the first one, haven't they? Yeah. So let's um, let's just run through the through the points. So how have they responded, Pete? Um, so I was just about to have some Vimto then. Um, so they've they first of all they've confirmed that they don't log any personal data with these requests. Um. And that they will, in addition to that, stop logging IP addresses and remove them from historical logs. Um, which does beg the question, which I'm going to put to you as a developer, um, kind of know, knowing the answer, but to explain to our listeners, why log it in the first place? Uh, well, simply because it's useful for debugging. And it's, you know, it's fairly common practice to to use the IP address because it's a unique identifier for that connection. Yeah. Uh, so it can help with, with debugging. I, I fully accept, you know, I'm sure people will immediately want to jump on that in the comments that it's not a good idea anymore. And particularly with GDPR and other privacy laws and everything else. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's something we particularly do that much anymore. We, we create yeah. a unique hash for, for each visitor, but I, in reality, is that, you know, is it that much different? I don't know. That's why Apple have done it. You know, this probably goes back since when they introduced Gatekeeper and different times. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just one of those things that ends up in the code. And I don't expect it was put in with malicious intent. If Apple wanted to maliciously track what we were doing, they wouldn't have chosen to log the IP address. They'll log your Apple ID and, you know, your, your, the hardware IDs of your, if your computers and the Mac address, as in MAC address of your network cards, those kind of data that yeah. they've got access to. And this kind of comes back to my my view on this sort of thing, which, um, again, I'm not making light of security and I'm not kind of sort of putting my hands down and going, well, what's, there's no point in having any security. You should follow good practice and you know strong passwords and, and just be sensible uh, with your digital life. But... If a company, this is my firm belief, if a company like Apple, Google, Microsoft really wanted to track you, like you say, there's plenty of other metrics they could use. And you can bet your bottom dollar if they wanted to do it for nefarious purposes, we wouldn't know about it. We wouldn't discover, Mm. oh, they're logging a a tenuously useful piece of information that doesn't really identify someone unencrypted. They would, that's not how it would go down. I agree with that. So something else that Apple have said they're going to do is develop a new encrypted protocol for doing these developer ID certificate revocation checks. 
So they'll stop using this, the standard protocol OCSP and they'll use their own encrypted protocol. So uh, I, there are plenty of people who would argue that it's, it's a bad thing that, you know, they're moving away from open source industry standards, but, yeah. uh, but this <laughs> so is the you problem. can't have it both ways. You, you can can't, you? no. And yeah, sometimes these big, big tech companies can't win and they're always going to be under scrutiny. There's always going to be pro pro speakers and anti speakers and then lovely people in the middle like us who are kind of, you know, trying to find the middle ground. Yeah, that's it. Um, obviously people are concerned that, you know, they were left in a situation where they couldn't open apps for a while, um, which is not a great situation to be in. And Apple has recognized that. So they've said they're going to improve the protections against server failure. Um, don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm sure they can figure something else out and uh, make it, you know, up until this point, I mean, bear in mind, this has been going on. This, this isn't a big sort of thing. This has been going on for years. Yeah. And it hasn't surfaced as a problem yet. So it's quite a unique scenario that's that's brought it to light. Um, so I don't think they'll have a problem fixing it. No. And, um, but yeah. perhaps most importantly, Pete, they've also said... Well, they're also going to give um, users the uh, a preference to opt out of these security settings. Uh, and they are security protections. So what mm -hmm. they're essentially doing is saying that if you want to, you can turn these things off and be less secure. Um, and again, some will some will criticize that. But again, it's not it's not unique. You know, on your your phone, you can have a four digit part. Well, certainly on my phone, you can have a four digit password or you can have a six digit one or you can have a complex one or you can have face ID or not. Or you can have it unlocked. You know, that's a user preference. Um, and you have to weigh up the risks depending on how you use your device, what data it's got on it, and so on and so forth. Hmm. And I think that's that's right that everybody gets gets the um gets to make the decision about what they're gonna do. Because for for most people, you know, Apple's trying to obviously create a one size fits all off the peg solution for the majority of people. So for the majority of people, these settings work. But there, I fully acknowledge and accept that there will be some people in specific industries, you know, who know a lot about security and particularly want to use Apple for whatever reason and want to have control over these things. So that's really great that this has come to light and it's been an opportunity to see how Apple respond to the community. Uh, I think their response has been pretty good. I mean, let's be clear here, we're not, you know, we're not Apple fanboys. I, you know, I'm pretty mm. disgusted with a lot of the things that Apple do, but I think you've got to judge a situation on its merits and you've got to stand back and look at the bigger picture and get some perspective on it. And I, I just, I can't see the big deal that everyone's making this out to be. Yeah. And it, Apple's response to this is the closest I think I've ever seen to Apple saying, yeah, there we've kind of, there are some issues here and we're going to deal with them. And sometimes that's all you can do. Even if you're a massive company like Apple, I think people think that Matt, because it's a massive company, they're omniscient and omnipotent and they can spot everything and it's just laziness and it's just that's just not the real world. Stuff happens. That's why, you know, you have security updates, you have software updates, you have bug fixes. It's just it's just a way of life. Hmm. So yeah, well perfection done. doesn't exist, does it? No, well done, Apple, for putting their hand up on this one. Um, and not saying, well, you're you're doing your security wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess in fairness, the 
all of this stuff has already been in the developer documentation. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure it's not news to a lot of people. In fact, there are quite a few sort of cybersecurity professionals who've spoken up and pointed out that a lot of the information that's been doing the rounds is just plain inaccurate, you know, and it is wrong. So you mean people are sensationalizing uh, and, and saying untruths mm. on the internet? Well, well, blow me down. <laughs> it gets views, Pete, and it gets clicks, and it gets people on your on your page. So why not? Yeah. Why not sensationalize it? Anyway, yeah. we're we're not doing that. He says making a podcast all about the issue to get some viewers. There we go. <laughs> What a pair of hypocrites we are, Pete. Caught red-handed. Let's yeah. move on. Let's talk about something else. I'd like to talk about the software on the new M1 Apple Silicon Max because mm. uh, it seems that there are still people who, you know, judging by the comments we're getting on the channel and judging by what I'm seeing other reviewers saying and judging by the comments that are on other channels, uh, people don't understand the software situation with Apple Silicon. And a lot of people were saying, I'm not going to buy Apple Silicon. I'm not going anywhere near it because I won't be able to run my software. won't work. Yeah. Yeah. My software won't work. So can we just, can we answer this uh, yeah. without, without spending a huge amount of time on it? Yeah. So basically with Apple Silicon, with new software that's coming out for it. Um, so say you're using Final Cut Pro and you've got an Intel Mac and your friend is using Final Cut Pro. In actual fact, here's a really good example. I've got an Intel Mac here. I'm going to be using it for the time being. I use Final Cut Pro. I've been upgraded to the latest version. Dave has now got Big Sur running and he's going to shortly be running that on some Apple Silicon. So the Final Cut Pro software package comes in... The installer comes with a, a universal binary. So what that basically means is inside this package is a Intel executable and an ARM or an Apple Silicon executable. And depending on which machine you're using, it will decide which one to install. So it's basically two install options for that machine. Right. So if, if anybody says or any software developer says, we have got an Apple Silicon optimized version of our software. What they're referring to is this, a universal binary. In almost every situation, there will be both Intel and Apple Silicon executables within the package. Yeah. So ho hopefully that's that's nice and clear. So uh, there will come a point in the future when uh, Apple withdraws Intel support. And at that point in time, then the executables or the binaries that get delivered will only be for Apple Silicon. But that time is not yet. No. That's probably three years at least down the road. So yeah. for now, it's universal binary and executable for both architectures in one package. That's right. So what do you do if you've only got an Intel binary? So if your developer hasn't yet made... Let's take a good example of this. Adobe, we were all expecting Adobe were on board because that's what Apple said at WWDC in June. Uh, but as it turns out, they haven't got any of their apps ready yet. Um, they're probably too busy counting all the subscription money, in fairness, and it's just, which is a big job. Yeah, so It will take yeah. them some time to get around to it. 
Um, so at some point next year, Photoshop will be redeveloped for Apple Silicon. But at the moment, it's Intel only. So what do you do if you want to use Photoshop and you've got an Apple Silicon Mac, Pete? Yeah, so if you're in that situation where you've got Adobe Photoshop, it's it's coded for Intel-only architecture, but you want to run it on your new Apple Silicon, that's fine. So you'd just use Rosetta 2. Or I say you'd use Rosetta 2. Your Mac would use Rosetta 2 to achieve that. Um, and obviously, some may be familiar with Rosetta, which was used when Apple went from PowerPC architecture to Intel architecture. Of course, Rosetta is sharing just really the name. Um, Rosetta 2 is completely different from Rosetta 1, which essentially emulated the PowerPC architecture uh, on the Intel chips, which was in theory easy to do because Intel chips were so much more powerful than PowerPC chips at that point that in theory it should have always run quite well. But um, as I seem to recall from things you shared with me, it wasn't that great. Uh, I had mixed experiences with it um, on different machines, actually. Um, I mean, I had, through that particular transition, I had PowerPC Macs, and in fact, I still have my... uh, In fact, I think it's still at the office, Pete. We should dig this out. But the old um, Mac Pro, I want to say Mac Pro, it's not a Mac Pro, Power Mac. had a G4 Power Mac, which I was using regularly, so I was running PowerPC software. But I also had a 17-inch MacBook Pro with a Core 2 Duo in it. And uh, that that was pretty good, actually. I mean, I think that came a little bit further into the transition, if I recall correctly. Uh, and that was very good at running PowerPC apps, and you wouldn't have known compared to using the, the Power Mac. Uh, but there were less powerful Intel chips in some of the Macs, and I think some people didn't have a great experience with it. So they uh, it's not remembered that fondly, I think. Um, and so people are thinking maybe the same thing is going to happen now. So... But Rosetta uh, 2 doesn't ex- work that way, does it? No, it doesn't. It, so it's just it's not emulation at all. What it's doing is it it's translating Intel code for Apple Silicon, and it, it I don't know how it does this, but when uh, when you first install an app that's an Intel only app, or when you first run an Intel only app, uh, then it will it will basically automatically fire up Rosetta 2, and it will translate the app. And apparently this takes about 20 seconds. I say apparently because I haven't got my Apple Silicon Mac yet. That's uh, tomorrow's excitement. Um, And presumably Rosetta 2 needs to run every single time the app gets updated. So we'll need to go back through this process. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how how it works in reality. I mean, it's definitely not recompiling the whole binary because you just wouldn't be able to do that in 20 seconds for a lot of these apps. So it's obviously in you know putting in some sort of translation layer so it does work with the vast majority of apps so microsoft office works fine with rosetta 2 adobe creative cloud works with rosetta 2 as far as i'm aware i'm sure most apps will work with rosetta 2 but there will be some exceptions and that will probably be down to plugins drivers i mean we've already spoken about how drivers work slightly differently on macOS 11 anyway, because you can't modify the kernel. So there are some areas that we need to do a bit of testing on. Hmm. Uh, I don't expect it will work with virtualization apps. You know, you're not going to be able to to run parallels yet. Uh, that you know, or VMware or anything like that that's going to then 
set up a virtual machine running some Intel-only code, if that makes any sense to you. Uh, people who are interested in virtualization will understand that. So it works for most things, most of your day-to-day -day apps. If you've got something specific like that where you need a virtual machine, then you probably already know about Rosetta and you know how it works and you know that you might need to hang on for a bit. What I'm seeing as well from my research is that performance is at about 80%. Now, the 80% is 80% of what it would be if it was properly optimized to run on Apple Silicon, not 80% of what it used to run on your old Intel MacBook Pro. It's 80% of what it could be on the new Apple Silicon. And given the speed of the Apple Silicon, that still means that it'll probably run faster than your Intel Mac. I hope that's been helpful anyway. If, if you've been concerned about, you know, what, what piece of software can we use? Um, well, the answer is pretty much all of it. Uh, and if you're not sure about a specific piece of software, just do your research. You know, someone will have tried it somewhere. Uh, ask Google and I'm sure you'll, you'll find the answer. But for the vast majority of people, you'll be able to run anything. Yeah. There's another type of software that you might be able to run. There is. And a lot of people are excited about this, which is, of course, I iOS and iPadOS software. Um, because obviously we're using a common architecture now. But that doesn't mean all of it will run, does it? No. Uh, I guess, I mean, someone made a comment about this actually just yesterday, I think, on the channel is, you know, something that perhaps you, you could get carried away and forget that your Mac doesn't have the same hardware as an iPad or an iPhone. Yeah. You know, those so, devices have additional sensors, don't they? That's it. So uh, a really good example of that would be an accelerometer. You know, your, your MacBook Pro doesn't have an accelerometer in it. So if you're expecting to use a, a, an app that relies on that, uh, it ain't going to work. Uh, again, some of the, you know, the, the sensors for depth of field and that kind of thing in the camera apps, not going to work. Um, but if it's, you know, if you want to play Angry Birds, there's probably actually a version of Angry Birds for MacBook Pro anyway, but you you know what I'm for, for iOS, um, Mac, Mac OS, OS, Mac OS. God, I'm getting really senior this evening, um, but you get the point. If there is a, a particular app that you enjoy using on your iPad or your iPhone, and it doesn't depend on any specific hardware to those devices, uh, you should be able to use it. Hmm. Again, though, a lot of people have rubbish this, you know, because they, you know, that is the obvious example. Well, I don't, I don't care about playing Angry Birds on my, on my MacBook Pro, and why are Apple cheapening the, uh, the app ecosystem by, you know, turning the Mac into an iPad? Um, but let me just give you one example of where this makes a lot of sense, and that is Microsoft Office. So we use Microsoft Office 365 for our, our business and we like it a lot. And mm -hmm. without it, it's difficult to imagine how we could run our business, frankly. And if you use the, the app on the Mac versus the app on the iPad, well, there are differences between the two, obviously. Um, but there are certain features that are missing in the iPad versions. If Apple is able to unify that code a little more so that the main difference is the user interface, then they can they can bring those apps closer together so that you end up in a win-win situation where 
because Microsoft is spending less time on that development, it means they can focus more on developing new features that you then get on both platforms. And they can bring up the quality of the iPad version. And, you know, I do regularly use uh, Excel, especially, but also OneNote on my iPad. And mm -hmm. I rely on that. So to have, you know, better functionality, I'm all for that. And and this inherent compatibility between the two systems creates those kind of situations where we, the consumer, win because of that setup. I, I think I think they will. I think it, it, it does make a lot of sense. And, you know, people are always quick to rubbish things like this without maybe thinking about those things. And thinking about the pros, you know, yeah, by all means, think about the cons, but think about the good things that come from from this as well. And then you weigh weigh that up in the balance and decide if it's for you. Hmm. Yeah, that's it. So um, horses for courses, isn't it? We're, we're yeah. all different, and you know, we, sh we shouldn't just rubbish a system. If it's got usability for anybody's workflow, then that's a good thing, isn't it? We're yeah. not all the same. And uh, vive la différence. So, believe they say in france are we c'est bon so are we concerned about software on our apple silicon Macs? um i would say if you're a particularly specific prof professional user potentially uh you know if you're using particularly specialist apps uh that rely on you know, drivers plugins you know e even if you're using some of the more mainstream apps um like final cut pro or uh, the like, uh, you may rely on plugins to do some of your work. They may or may not work. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm going to be testing. I use a, a few plugins in Final Cut Pro, not many, but I'm curious to see if they'll work out of the box. But in reality, I think most professional users who have that concern are going to wait, aren't they? They're, they're going to wait until uh, more professional hardware comes along, if if nothing else. Yeah, and on that note, someone dropped a comment on the channel today, and I I got no basis for this at all. But he was speculating on the possibility that Apple would put two of these M1 chips together inside a machine. Which, Ooh. if you think about it, he made a very very good point. And I'm sorry I've I've not done my research and got the comment up so I can name drop. Um, but you know that's, who you are. That's a really um, astute comment. That that reminds me of when Volkswagen put two V6 engines together to come up with the W12. Yes. Good Although, shout. Let's see if it happens. Well, it, it would resolve the display issue, you know, with the being able to connect more than one external display to your laptop. It would double the number of Thunderbolt ports. It would vastly increase the power, and it would get that GPU punching very far above its weight. So who knows? I mean, Apple is certainly going to do something interesting for professional users, and we'll have to just wait and see what they do. We are looking forward to reviewing these Macs ourselves and seeing how powerful they are. And it's fair to say they are already very powerful. But if we just, uh, as professional users, if we hang on, you know, next year, this time, what are we going to be looking at? It's going to be something even more exciting. So I think Definitely. professional users will, will wait. And the majority of casual users or general purpose computing users, well, they can get by just fine on Apple Silicon. There's there's power to spare in those units. I mean, frankly, the basic MacBook Air is all the computer most people will ever need, it would seem. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So they're going to go straight in and get in amongst it and, you know, re 
iron out all the the kinks and bugs for us pro users so that we can get in there and get on with our lives. Yeah. Of course, we we have committed to buying a couple to um there's a couple of angles for this, you know, just so people are aware because obviously the channel doesn't generate enough income to justify purchasing these bits, but uh it's also something that we're very interested in for the purpose of our web studio. You know, we need to replace equipment. Uh, we've got quite a few staff, quite a lot of Apple notebooks and machines that need to get re, you know, replaced on a, a regular interval. So we kind of need to know, do we need to buy a bunch of Intel machines imminently to tide us over until, you know, Apple Silicon is, is way down the road? Or can we actually use Apple Silicon now? So that's part of the reason why we've we've bought these machines to to have a go with. Um, my, mine's been delayed again, like my Apple Watch was, so... Um, uh, the Mac Mini is arriving tomorrow, apparently, if, if UPS can be bothered. Uh, so, is your breath we'll baited? It, it is not, no. I'm, we'll see what happens. But it, if that uh, if that is the case, obviously the podcast goes up at four on a Monday. That's the plan. Uh, I'll get playing on the Monday. I'll film something on the Tuesday. So hopefully Tuesday, late Tuesday afternoon, UK time, we'll have our first Apple Silicon video up on the channel. Oh, very excited. Uh, and Pete... I know you're looking forward to testing the MacBook Air. In fact, a lot of people have commented actually that we've made a very good choice in the two machines because we've got the the Mac Mini with the 16 gig versus the entry level MacBook Air with 8 gig and 7 GPU cores. Um, so it's going to be fun to test those, but unfortunately that's going to have to wait a little while because Apple haven't even shipped that one yet. Pete will now tell a joke. <laughs> Pressure. So are you sure it hasn't just shipped from somewhere, you know, like mars and it's just coming the long way around because i think they do have a facility on mars now to mine precious metals there <laughs> you heard it here first yeah. folks uh, that's uh, that's our prediction for what 2034 or something Pete? yeah probably probably apple apple store on mars so um you, you've been having trouble with ups have you uh yeah, it's, well, it's not a major a major deal. My, the package got stuck in Hong Kong Airport, uh, delayed, and they don't give you any reason for that. But what that what that basically did was meant that it only got into the UK on Friday. Uh, it then arrived at my local delivery depot at two a.m. on Saturday morning, and UPS don't think to themselves, "Oh, actually, we've kept this guy waiting and we've delayed his package. Let's uh, let's stick it on a Saturday delivery." Yeah seen as the service that Apple Books does include a Saturday delivery, but they just don't bother in our area. In no. between. It, it's so, a difficult one, isn't it? I sound really bitter well, about this. Well, no, I mean, it's frustrating. I mean, I it's the big companies that are frustrating. I feel sorry. I found out the other day that some of these delivery drivers are just getting such a paltry amount per parcel that they deliver. Uh, they're on zero contract hours. I think Hermes is the worst of it. I actually had a Hermes delivery driver come the other day and i actually said to him look i really appreciate how hard this must be for you particularly in this climate with so much to do so much pressure risking yourself in terms of the health aspect of things and um he started tearing up actually as he wrote the letter saying you weren't home and then drop kick my parcel into next door I knew, I knew the joke was coming. I was just just waiting to see when it would happen. You may want to edit that one out, Tom, but you might like it for your for your own amusement. It's a good dad joke. Uh, I think our American listeners slash viewers don't 
don't get the uh, enjoyment of Hermes. But I think everything's different actually in the States. You know, in this in this country, I can go onto Amazon on a Saturday evening and I can order something and it will arrive on Sunday morning. So, and that can be, in fact, I, I did that very thing this weekend for a, a writing pad. That was all, a writing pad. And, you know, if Amazon can get their act together to do that, why can't Apple get their logistics together? And if I if I do sound a little bit bitter and twisted, it's it's because I've invested so much into the channel and getting these things in time and up on the channel early, you know, generates views, it generates subscribers, it makes a big difference. Uh, you know, I got my Apple Watch two weeks late, so the boat had already sailed on that. Um, you know, we're we're late to the party again with the Apple Silicon. Who knows when the MacBook Air is going to turn up? But hopefully, you guys will stick around for our healthy dose of perspective we'll try and test the things that other people don't um and hopefully that'll be interesting and valuable content and hopefully we can still hit our target of ten thousand subs by the end of the year but I, i'm i'm not as confident as i once was about that Pete. well it is ticking up and i'm sure you know many of our our listeners out there may be inclined to spread the word and, and help others find find us youtube.com forward slash constant geekery or on on podcast platform of your choice it would be lovely to have more people listening lovely to have more youtube subscribers it will help us support the channel and i know it has been frustrating uh getting getting products so late after all the other youtubers out there have got it but as you say sometimes it's not necessarily the first to the post but it's the one that gives the most the most useful insight so hopefully we can we can dig out some things that are of, uh, of use. And I, I do sense from reading the comments that uh, you listeners out there, that those people that are uh, commenting and engaging with us, you appreciate the, the angles we're taking things from. So uh, hopefully we can do that when we get our hands on this hardware. Yeah, and I hope that we can do that to Apple Silicon Justice. You know, I, I hope we can create some really informative and entertaining videos. Uh, we've got a lot planned, I think it's fair to say. I'm actually, my head is kind of, bursting with all these different ideas of things we want to do so we'll get started on that as soon as we can in the meantime thank you very much uh, for watching and or listening to the constant geekery podcast we really appreciated having you along for the ride uh, we'll have something else to talk about next week i'm sure and uh, in the meantime i hope you have a great week stay safe everybody we'll see you again for the constant geekery podcast Cheerio.